Hello and welcome to the Learn English Football Podcast with your hosts, Tim and Tom. Hi, Tom. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Tim. How are you? Very well, very well. Full up. I've been watching a lot of football this week. It's been fantastic. Me too. Me too. I, well, most of it has been fantastic. Uh, I'm not so sure about the uh, the hyped up Borussia Dortmund game against Manchester City. That was the one disappointing match I've seen this week. But we're not going to talk yeah. about that, are we? No, we're not. It is disappointing. I watched that match as well, hoping for a lot of goals, hoping to see Bellingham and and Hazard, uh, not Hazard, uh, Haaland playing great football. Um, and yeah, Haaland went off and it was a bit of a damp squib. A damp, is squib. A damp squib, yes. Uh, it, it's a disappointment, something that doesn't live up to the expectations. Yes, and I liked what you said before. There was a lot of hype around the game, a lot of feeling of excitement before something uh, big is happening. For example, there's a lot of hype around the World Cup at the moment, obviously. Um, so here, to, here we are today, Tom, to talk football, to talk English, to help all of our listeners speak football. Um, and um, there is a topic in football that never stops giving us things to talk about and that is our friend which is in every match it never fails to introduce uh, to have an impact on the match and that is VAR Tom VAR have we gone too VAR that's the question um mm -hmm. and we've had some controversy this week we've had Harry Kane we've had uh Scott McTominay We've had some events uh, all around world football. Um, we've had some, uh, some 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 events here in Spain as well. Um, also, we're coming towards the crunch end of the group stage in the Europa League and the Champions League. And when I say the crunch end, Tom, do I mean the beginning or the end when everything starts getting more important? Uh, when it's crunch time, it's when things become critical, crucial, uh, very important, as you said. You're right. I've mixed up two things. The business end of the group stage and crunch time in the group stage. Uh, Tom, you can tell you're a teacher. Uh, very nice. Very nice. Uh, so, yes. And the big question, lots of teams who are traditionally Champions League teams going down to the Europa League. And then we've got a couple of uh, smaller topics to cover. Showboating, uh, uh, doing obvious displays of skill in matches at times when maybe it's not totally necessary. We're going to talk about the morality of showboating. Um, and then, of course, a lot of our listeners uh, will be familiar with uh, Unai Emery, um, a very successful manager in Spanish and international football and in European football. And, uh, of course, he's moved clubs this week and we'll be talking a bit about him. So, Tom, let's jump straight in. Uh, VAR, VAR, VAR. What's your heart telling you about VAR? Ha, ha, is it is it good? I know we've covered it before on the podcast, but it's still a relatively new thing and opinions mm. do change. Uh, it doesn't stop surprising us. So it's still a valid topic. Um, so what's your opinion, Tom? Is it you overall in favour, overall against it, overall undecided? Overall, do you want, do you think it's a good idea, but it needs changes? What's your opinion? Your final comment, a good idea that needs improvement. Uh, I, I feel that it is inevitable uh, as the game modernises, as more and more technology becomes faster and immediate. Yes, it makes sense to use VAR, but it's still clear that right now uh, we are in the early days of VAR and we've still got many, many problems with it. Uh, I believe you saw an incident in the Tottenham Sporting Lisbon game. I also saw a couple in the West Ham Bournemouth game. Uh, would you like to go first? 
Yeah, okay then. I did. Uh, I was watching uh, Tottenham Sporting, uh, supporting Sporting, as as everyone will know. Um, and in the final minutes of the game, in the ninety second minute, it was one all. Tottenham were one or had come back into the game. Uh, they were pushing for the winner, and uh, it looked to everyone in the stadium like Harry Kane had scored the winner. There was a ball across the box. It was headed back across the goal by uh, the 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 wing back Royale. Uh, it was actually headed backwards. Um, and according to the image that I've got in front of me, the still image and the video I saw on the day, uh, it looks like Harry Kane is behind Emerson Royale um, to the naked eye, to the bare eye. Um, and what happens is the ball goes backwards. It takes a deflection off the sporting player, which then makes the ball go forwards. It goes to Harry Kane and he slots it past the goalkeeper. It's a nice finish. The Tottenham Stadium goes crazy. Uh, everyone's celebrating. And it took, I think, almost four minutes for the decision to be made. That, to me, seems very strange because offside should be black and white. It shouldn't be interpretation. Now, Tom... I've been playing the game my whole life. I've been watching my uh, the game my whole life, and you have as well. In my understanding of the offside rule, if the ball goes backwards, it's not offside. Absolutely, um, yes. If it comes back uh, off a defender as well, yeah, absolutely, it's not offside. And the other thing is that when it's a very fine margin, the advantage or the benefit of the doubt, that expression means if there is uncertainty, we weigh the uncertainty on the side of the attacking team. So I think for both those reasons, they are legitimate reasons why that goal should stand, why it should have been given as Tottenham's winning goal. I couldn't agree more. And again, it does. Uh, I didn't want the Tottenham goal to be a goal, but as a football fan, you look at it and you think that's a goal. That that my instinct as a football fan, my heart, my head tells me that's a goal. And I think that's one thing that's important in the VAR discussion. The rules were made to fit the perceptions of the game that people had, not vice versa. The rules are not there to, to change how you think of football. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think everybody who's who's been playing and watching, especially playing football their whole life, they do have a strong instinct for how the game should be. And when the ball goes backwards, it's not offside. That's obvious. That's been obvious since I was playing football in the playground when I was four years old with one ball and 40 kids running around trying to kick lumps out of each other. Mm -hmm. um, when that's you say going been... backwards, that's regardless of whether it's the attacking team or the defending team who kicks that ball. If it goes backwards away from the, the goal being attacked on, it's not offside. I just mean when, when the pass is made... When the pass is made, if the ball goes backwards mm -hmm. um, and Harry Kane is behind the ball, to me, that, that just simply can't be offside. If then after the pass is made, there's a deflection which takes the ball forwards, mm -hmm. then for me, that deflection has is a new phase of play. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's come off a defender, then it, it doesn't it doesn't affect the offside because it's come off a defender. Mm -hmm. um, and it just seems to me that when, when again, when we've made this point before, when 99% of people watching something and understanding the sport that they love don't understand the decision, then it's not the 99% of people's fault. It's the mm -hmm. decision's fault. It's the rule's fault. Um, I, I, can I bring in my similar anecdote about the West Ham-Bournemouth game I watched on Monday night? Because I'm essentially making the same point as you. Uh, I will describe it for our listeners. Yes, uh, West Ham won the game 2-0. 
And we had two decisions that both went to VAR for our goals. Uh, in the first half, we had a corner kick. Uh, a, the corner came in and our centre-back, Tylo Kera, uh, was jumping in the air and he ended up accidentally doing what I would call a volleyball dig. His arms were tucked in uh, and the, his hands were together. And he didn't, he couldn't track the movement of the ball. It, it travelled past a lot of people, but it hit his arms and popped up into the air. And uh, two, headed, two headers later, it was in the back of the net. VAR looked at it and decided that because his arms were tucked in, uh, it was accidental. It wasn't a real handball, 1-0 to West Ham. Later in the game, right at the end of the game, uh, another VAR decision came in where our right back, Soufel, put a cross in. The defender tried to block it, but his hand was raised in the air. The ball hit his hand. VAR looked at it, gave a penalty to West Ham. Uh, West Ham scored the penalty. Uh, so by the letter of the law, you could argue that both decisions were technically correct. The first time, our defender had his arms tucked in. They were not in the air. Uh, so it wasn't considered a handball. The second time his arm was in the air, that's always given as a handball. But for all the fans watching these chances, uh, particularly the second one, there was no real goal-scoring opportunity coming from that cross. Uh, yes, his hand intercepted it, but there wasn't a West Ham player running into the box. So it was interesting to see how one decision, both decisions went in our favour uh, but one handball, to, to the mind, my mind, even as a West Ham fan, the first handball was clearly a handball that led to an opportunity for a goal. Uh, and that one was allowed. And then the handball, which was not going to lead to an opportunity for the goal, was disallowed. So, again, it's a system where technically the rules say those two goals were correct. But for everyone watching in the stadium, it seems like there's something wrong with the rules. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, it's strange when uh, I think essentially we need intelligent people willing to make autonomous decisions in the VAR studio. I think there needs to be some room for interpretation. I mean, when a goal, uh, football is a low scoring sport, so you need to protect the integrity of that goal um, because otherwise you get games decided by controversial moments which is what essentially we're discussing here now this first goal that West Ham scored it sounds to me that although he was following the laws of the game he had his hands tucked in as you say and I like that phrasal verb mm -hmm. um I tuck in my shirt when I go to work mm -hmm. uh, when I get on my bicycle I truck I tuck my trousers into my sock Mm -hmm. um so yeah to put your clothes in or to hold your hands uh arms close to your body um and it seems to me that although he was following the law, that action, that handball affected the game, obviously. It created a goal-scoring opportunity. So for me, I don't think these moments should be, I think it should have been called as a foul, even though his hands were tucked in. And at the same time, I think the opposite is also true. I think your hands can be in a natural position when they're up. Mm -hmm. As we've spoken about before, we're both defenders here, Tom. Your That's hands right. when you're jumping, when you're changing direction, they do. When you're up. lunging forward to block yes. across, yes, you're, you're I, I think natural. I think this this whole arms up debate came from a generation of defenders in the early two thousands. I can definitely think of John Terry being one of them who used mm -hmm. to stand in front of shots and intentionally make their body bigger 
because Mm -hmm. at that point there was no rule. And I think, again, they've made this rule about hands up and hands in, and they're they're interpreting it too literally. They're giving it too much importance and they're taking away the footballing intelligence that a referee, an experienced referee, should have. Um, And again, I think this is an opportunity where referees should come out and explain their decisions. Because let's face it, if this referee in your match at the end of the game came out at the end of the match and said, I didn't give a penalty there, because um, although it was an an obvious hand, or no, sorry, I, yeah, uh, I did give a foul there because although his hands were tucked in, it had a massive contribution to the game and created a goal. And I don't think many fans sitting at home would question that. Of course, you've had the the tribal rivalry of the two clubs affected, but then on a bigger footballing scale, I think um, there'd be a lot more patience, a lot more understanding. And that's what we want. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's hard, isn't it? You try and make the rules black and white. But what we're both arguing for now is a little bit more common sense, a little bit more of a human touch when we're interpreting the rules. It's impossible to make a black and white a set of rules for football. Football is such an open, varied game. There are no two situations the same between kickoffs and penalties mm-hmm. um, and corners. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, for example, last weekend we had Scott McTominay uh, fouling Brozier, the, uh, the the Chelsea striker, for, for putting his arms around his body off a corner. We see that every match we see that at least 10 times why was this one called why were the other ones that we saw last weekend not called uh for example i compare that with gabriel jesus who was running in the area with the ball the defender had his arms all around him uh way more than tamori on mount in the champions league a few weeks ago but the defender did get a tiny toe on the ball but the Mm. toe was so tiny that gabriel Mm. still had the ball it was still his possession, even though the defender had touched the ball, but the defender was still there holding him. Gabriel falls over mm-hmm. and the penalty is not given. The justification being he's touched the ball. But that's not an intelligent decision. That's a black and white. I'm following mm-hmm. the rules decision. And the conclusion and I came... Yes, sorry. I just oh, want I'm to sorry. interrupt and say, and sometimes there's no nothing more than a 50-50. Uh, my question for you now, yeah, I, th- I think you probably saw the Barcelona game in the week. Uh, was Lewandowski fouled for a penalty? Because I'm hearing some commentators say yes and some commentators say no. I, well, I think it's hard to say. I think it's hard to say. Um, if you watch the German media, I'm sure they will say no. Uh, mm. And if you watch the Spanish or the Catalan press, I'm sure they'll say yes. It's hard to say. But I think you're right. There is such thing as a 50-50 challenge where two people can essentially either both get the ball or both miss the ball or both make legal challenges. And both people maybe cause each other damage or pain to the other person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's necessarily a foul. Mm-hmm. Um, we like a bit of contact on the football pitch. Let's not forget. We do. Otherwise, now, we'd be playing basketball. I'm speaking as a defender here, but I'd go with Lewandowski on that one. It is true that the defender managed to just toe the ball out of Lewandowski's path with the tip of his toe as Lewandowski was protecting it. But for me, that contact wasn't strong enough to justify it as a fair challenge and to justify the defender coming through on Lewandowski and taking him down. So that one for me was a penalty that should have been given. But it's the, the VAR disagrees with me. VAR disagreed with me on that one. So Yeah, 
Um, I think the conclusion I came to over the past few weeks is vast swings in roundabouts. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an expression that we used to use to talk about refereeing decisions. We used to say, oh, we got a bad decision today, but don't worry. It swings in roundabouts. Next week, we'll get a we'll get a good um, we'll get a good decision over the course of the season. They even themselves out. These are all expressions and vocabulary and 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 ways of seeing things that used to be part of uh, refereeing and, and fans discussions before VAR came in. And it turns out that they're still part of the discussions. So mm. this whole idea of VAR coming in to remove doubt, to remove subjective decisions, to, to, to stop the big teams getting favoured. Mm -hmm. still The big teams are still getting more penalties at home than, mm -hmm. than, they, 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 than the small teams. Yeah. Still getting, that's, that proportion still correlates with pre-VAR times. We're still waiting four minutes for a VAR decision <laughs> sometimes, yeah. like the Tottenham game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so it seems to me a little so bit crazy. Maybe maybe there is an argument just to get rid of VAR altogether, go back to the old way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Tom, I'm not going to lie to you. The best refereed matches I've ever played in have been matches where there's been no referee. And okay, the consequences are a lot lower uh, mm -hmm. when it's you and your friends playing, but there's honesty. And mm -hmm. that honesty goes a long way. Um, mm -hmm. Tom, um, talking about interpretation and and having a bit giving people a bit of uh, an exception sometimes i heard there was a, a very controversial red card given for a second yellow for celebrating with a shirt taken off um could you mm -hmm. describe to some of our listeners what happened who it was yes uh, this... i think it's an interesting case it's another example of a black and white law not mm -hmm. understanding the game this happened in uh, the Villarreal against Almeria game. I believe it was on uh, Sunday or Monday night. And uh, we have to understand the context. The president of Villarreal had just passed away. To pass away is a euphemism. It means to die. So the whole stadium was in mourning. They felt like this president was so important to building this club into being, let's be honest, overachievers, punching above their weight consistently for the last 20 years. They were UEFA league winners uh, just the season ago. So everyone was very sad at the stadium. Uh, a player for our Almeria listeners, uh, Bayena from Roquetas del Mar, the, the town just down the road, actually scored an important goal in this game. Almeria were winning 1-0. Bayena scored the equaliser for Villarreal. And he whipped his shirt back. He didn't take it off. He just pulled the top back briefly over his head had the shirt still resting on his shoulders, but so everyone could see the message he'd written on his T-shirt. Thank you to the, the president who died. Uh, seconds later, the referee runs over, points a yellow card at him, which is his second yellow card, and sends him off. Villarreal have to finish the game with 10 men, uh, and they effectively were punished for wanting to pay tribute, meaning pay their respects to their dead president. So the whole stadium was furious, was outraged. Uh, ironically, though, the, uh, the I say now the ex-VRAL manager, Unai Emery, because he's gone to Aston Villa, we'll talk about that a little bit later, was much more calm about it. He said he's a good referee and he applied the rules. Sensitivity is another issue, but you think of that too late. Maybe if he had been a bit calmer, he would have acted differently. He's talking about the referee. The referee would have acted differently, but he acted according to the rules. So I tell you, Tim, the rules specifically state 
if you take your shirt off, it's a yellow card. Uh, if you pull your shirt up to cover your face, it's a yellow card. Uh, technically, you could argue that for a split second, Alex Baena did pull his shirt over his face to pull it back over his head. For that split second, he was infringement of the rules. Do you think that justified the yellow card? I think I think he's broken the rules. I think it's a yellow card offence. But mm. I think it's the kind of offence where the situation and the context of the situation needs to be taken into account, needs to be factored in. And, um, and again, it's not dangerous play. It's not cheating. It's nothing that can affect the outcome of the game or anything like that. And, um, and again, football is more than just a sport. It's more than just a business. It's more than just a culture. It's more than just a society. It's all of those things. And when something, uh, for example, from a cultural or a social group uh, has been a very powerful event, you can understand why those people want to um, want to celebrate. I mean, we've had the things recently with uh, Celtic and Rangers, um, how they reacted to the Queen's passing. And, you know, Rangers broke the rules. Rangers played uh, the national anthem in, in defiance of the UEFA, the UEFA rules. And UEFA actually said, we won't punish you. Because they considered that it was a moment of um, of national grieving, and to grieve is to feel sad when you lose something, or somebody dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and and fair play to UEFA. I mean, we don't want to get into the discussion of if they should or if they shouldn't or whatever. But at least UEFA there have showed some flexibility, more flexibility than I would argue that this referee has been able to show on the day. I don't. I personally, if I was the referee, wouldn't have given him that yellow card. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have done either. Either. However, uh, I have to say Villarreal did go on to win the game with 10 men. Uh, I suspect this was why Unai Emery was so calm and, uh, and polite and respectful in his comments about the referee afterwards. It might have been a different story if Villarreal had only drawn or lost that game. Uh, and yeah. also, we have to consider from a cultural point of view, this red card, in some ways, it, it shone the spotlight even brighter on uh, this ex-president of Villarreal. So in some ways, more attention. The referee has done him a favour. In some ways, you could argue that, uh, yes, by that incident, the referee did help illuminate the cause and, and the feelings that the fans had. Yes, sure. Well, Tom, you know I love a connection. And uh, talking about Unai Emery, let's move on and let's talk about Unai Emery. Uh, So I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, will be familiar. He's uh, one of the most successful Spanish Spanish, uh, managers. He's won the Europa League with with Sevilla, with uh, with Villarreal. Yes, four Four times. times. He's the most successful manager in the history of the Europa League. He's reached the final, of course, with Arsenal. He's been he's been Valencia manager. He's always got teams in Spain to finish above where they were finishing before he arrived. He's always left clubs in Spain in a better position than when he arrived. That is absolutely without doubt. If you speak to any local person here in Spain, that's exactly the the opinion they'll have. Here in Almeria, Tom, people think he's almost a god. He's the person who who took Almeria up for the first time, which of course was the most difficult. Um he obviously had a, a less successful period in Paris Saint-Germain and a less successful period at Arsenal. And I think that's maybe affected uh, his reputation in, the, in in England, for example. But um, firstly, 
Let's let's um, enter the debate that a lot of people have been having here in Spain. Why has he left Villarreal? Has he gone to Villarreal? Has he left Villarreal just for the money? Uh, there's talk of him earning six thousand six million euros a year at um, at Aston Villa. No, sorry, seven million euros a year at Aston Villa. They had to pay Villarreal six million euros. Do you think he's left for the money? Do you think he's left for a sporting project? Do you mm. think he's left because he's got unfinished business in England to have? unfinished business is when when you've done something you failed and you want to prove that you can be a success um why or do you think he's he's left because Villarreal are a sinking ship um do you think he's left because Spanish football doesn't allow the, uh, smaller clubs an opportunity to to progress and to become bigger clubs um what's the what's the situation what do you think uh, I, I agree with the first three reasons you stated there the money obviously is a big factor a new project as well. He took Villarreal, let's face it, as, as far as he could really on the budget that he's got with them. He's, he's turned them into a top six team. He made them Europa League champions. Uh, and also he's got unfinished business. After his time at Arsenal, I think he would be the first to reflect on that period and think he made mistakes. Uh, one of those mistakes, actually, we could argue was with his language. Uh, he was perhaps going into the Arsenal job more confident about his abilities with the English language than, than the reality of his abilities. I've been uh, reading an article recently saying that he has been studying English uh, since he left Arsenal. So uh, mm-hmm. he should have made progress. He should um, have done. Well, I, you, to- you told me, Tim, that uh, he became a bit of a running joke uh, in the Arsenal press conference when he would come in in the evenings and say, Good evening, good evening, good evening. Yes, evening. and unfortunately, it became it became a bit of a, a stick to beat him with. It became a thing that people criticised him through, um, and it's 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 almost it's an interesting discussion because now this whole way of laughing at Unai Emery has been very much discredited in the British press, and it's almost I've heard it described as xenophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which for me is a little bit over the line because, uh, you know, I've been talking about it with uh, Spanish people here in Spain and people think it's funny. Uh, and, and you know, it's the kind of thing that thing that Spanish people do like laughing about. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I like, I, I, it's a very common, my accent in Spanish is often a, a conversation with my Spanish friends and it's a reason to laugh, not a reason to, to find hate or difference. Well, um, I, I would like to add a couple of comments. I, I think regarding language, the mistake you made last time was that he didn't use an interpreter. Uh, He should have put put his trust in a a truly bilingual interpreter. That would have helped him out. Uh, I also think that we can expect him to be much better this time with the language. Uh, I also think that Aston Villa is the perfect fit for him because he's come to the end of his time with Villarreal. He's taken them as far as they can go. Aston Villa, in contrast, are quite a big club uh, with an expensive squad. They have spent a lot of money. Yeah, when you say quite a big club, let's give it some context. They've got mm-hmm. seven league titles. They've got a European club. They're the biggest club in the second biggest city mm-hmm. in England. So, I mean, if you were to compare them geographically, you could say they were a Valencia, Valencia or a Sevilla in terms of club size, historically. They've got the potential to be a top six club. Realistically, they're a top 10 club in terms of their stadium, their fans and the money behind them. But actually, this is a perfect project for Unai Emery. You mentioned it earlier. He has failed at the very big clubs. So you argue failed. He's still won stuff. But he has been more successful when he's had a smaller club uh, making a group of players and a smaller budget 
and improving that, making them work better. So making all the individual parts work collectively better as a team. I think Aston Villa is the perfect challenge for him. And I think Aston Villa fans will be very happy. They were crying out for Steven Gerrard to go. They were very unhappy with his tactics. So Unai Emery, I think, uh, will be a positive step forward for them. I think uh, Aston Villa fans would say to you, what tactics uh, regarding <laughs> yeah. Stephen Gerrard? Yeah, I mean, Stephen Gerrard was always going to be a person who lived on his reputation to some extent. I do always question someone who goes uh, up to Scotland to, to to gain a reputation because there's a league of two. And OK, he won it for the first time in nine years. But that was a process which was eventually going to happen anyway. And you look at Giovanni Van Bronckhorst since he's gone in at Rangers since... Uh, since he uh, since Gerard left, he's done a very good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually improved Rangers, so mm-hmm. that's always again a worrying sign if you're a Villa fan. Um, and just on their CV, I mean Unai Emery's won so much; he's so experienced. I think another thing with the language, Unai Emery is a very tactical manager. He does create quite co- complex defensive systems and quite complex systems for playing out from the defence. Um, and maybe when his language wasn't so strong, that uh, stopped him communicating complex ideas. And hopefully, if he's got stronger language nowadays, uh, he will be able to communicate some of those more complex ideas a bit more easily and uh, have a bit more success. Um, he needs to trust his team as well. You know, they, I, I think uh, Jurgen Klopp has said this about Liverpool since Darwin Nunes or uh, the is it Diaz from Colombia has come in. Klopp struggles to to get complex messages through to these players. Uh, And Unai Emery will have to recognise that when his messages are subtle, nuanced, sophisticated, nice synonyms there, uh, he will need probably to rely on uh, someone uh, who can translate very well from, from native Spanish into the language of these players. Yeah. So, Tom, let's move on. Uh, it's um, We're coming towards the end, as we said, of the uh, Europa and Champions League group stages. We're going to talk a bit about the group stages um, in the Champions League. So it looks like some real big hitters, some heavyweights of European football are dropping down to the Europa League. I think it's probably going to be the strongest Europa League in the history of Europa Leagues in terms of Big names, romantic European football clubs, you know. Uh, We're looking most likely to drop down at the moment from Group A at Ajax, from Group B, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona uh, from Group C. Group D is a total mess. I mean, we've got uh, Marseille, Sporting, Tottenham uh, and Frankfurt, all all more or less level on points. Uh, I think there's three points between top and bottom in that group. It's an incredible group. We're really hoping Tottenham lose away next week in Marseille. (laughs) Um, Group, (laughs) sorry, Uh, we've got Group E, we've got Salzburg, we've got Shakhtar Donetsk, who are playing good football with an exciting left winger. We've got Sevilla uh, and Juventus. I mean, Juventus, Barcelona, Atletico dropping down. It's absolutely incredible. We don't want to spend too much time on this, Tom, but um, the real question is, how seriously do you think some of these bigger clubs will take it? Will a club like Juventus really give it 100% on a Thursday night away in Eastern Europe? Will Barcelona uh, have learnt from their mistakes last season against Frankfurt and realise that being in the Europa League doesn't give you a God-given right to win it? Um, or do you think we'll see a bit of complacency again from some of these big sides? I know as an Arsenal fan, we're definitely hoping for some complacency. Because Arsenal are in the tournament this year. We yes. certainly are. Uh, uh, I, I, I suspect that uh, if these players are professional, professional managements, players, 
then they will be trying their hardest as soon as they get into the UEFA League. Of course, they will be disappointed. These are clubs who always expect to reach the elimination stage of the Champions League. So there is failure. There is disappointment to contend with. But there is still something to play for. And uh, let's be honest, a more realistic chance of winning some European silverware. So I would expect these clubs to be trying hard. They may feel... You know, they, they, they can cruise a little bit in the first couple of games if they don't have such a difficult tie. But by the quarterfinal and the semifinal st stage, we can expect the strongest teams to be out and players giving 100%. You really think so? I think uh, I, 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 I tend to disagree. I think uh, there's something in the psychology of a big club. Uh, and I think it comes from the players. I think it comes from the media. I think it comes from the fans. I think back to Frankfurt Barcelona last year where the Frankfurt fans were able to buy 25,000 seats in the camp now, uh, buying local tickets. What If you're a Barcelona player and you know that 25,000 seats are going empty, what kind of image does that, what kind of a message does that give you? You know, and I was listening to an interview the other night with Gabriel Jesus uh, talking about the upcoming PSV game. Um, and uh, the question was, uh, are you going into the game to, 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 to get some rest or to win the game? And he looked confused. He said, I thought we were already qualified. He didn't even really know the position that Arsenal had in the group. He was very relaxed about the game. And then Arsenal lost last night and it was a very relaxed performance. I think that players do kind of have it in their heads that they can turn up to some games and just win it without trying too much. Uh, on alternatively, they they think some tournaments are below them. And that is a real factor for a team like Juventus, for Barcelona, um, I think it's going to be and not not the other ones, but for Juventus and Barcelona, I think it's going to be very difficult for the for there to be a genuine atmosphere of urgency and importance um, and nerves before a Europa League quarterfinal or semifinal. In a final, yes, but let's not forget, Tom, you've got to get to the final first. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Um, it could go either way. Anyway, uh, it's going to be an exciting Europa League this season. And then finally, Tom. You wouldn't catch me or you doing this on a football pitch uh, or anywhere else for that matter, maybe on a dance floor after a couple of pints. But a pirouette, Tom, can you talk me through what is a pirouette? <laughs> I believe a pirouette comes from ballet dancing. It describes spinning 360 degree circle on the spot, turning around fully, a, a full turn. Yes, we're going to uh, take on the controversial topic of showboating in football. So showboating is when uh, you show excessive displays of skill and technique and and uh, and flair for no real reason. Um, and we've seen maybe some of the more uh, flamboyant players do it in the past, Neymar, Ronaldinho. But the uh, two I always remember a Belgian player doing the seal dribble, where he tried to, he, he was running along the field, bouncing the ball on his head, uh, which is both extraordinary to watch, also very, very dangerous in case a defender just comes along and barges you off the ball while you're not even looking because you're trying to balance the ball. Yes. So the question really is here, Tom, is there some room for it in the game? Is there room for showboating? Uh, if there is, is it disrespectful? 
if defenders react angrily, how should the referees protect the players? Should they take into account the, the anger that the defender might feel? Because we've had a couple of fantastic examples this week. Fantastic if you're a football fan or an Arsenal fan or a West Ham fan, because they were both from players that we don't really like. Uh, one was Emerson Royale running down the right wing for Tottenham. Uh, he looks right. And then he passes left, a no-look pass made famous by his countryman, Ronaldinho. Uh, the only problem was, Tom, the pass was totally overplayed and it went straight out for a, for a goal kick. Uh, he looked very stupid. And I tell you who didn't look happy was Antonio Conte on the, on the Spurs bench. <laughs> so if you're Antonio Conte, Tom, and uh, your player has missed a simple pass, a simple five-metre pass because he's making a no-look pass what do you say to him at full time mm -hmm. uh if i'm talking to emerson royale then i would say to use another phrase stay in your lane son what does that mean stay in your lane know your limitations and uh don't don't try and do too much exactly now we, we the, the trouble with showboating is that when it does work it looks spectacular i would argue that for example the rabona is an example of showboating. The Rabona. Uh, the Rabona, sorry. Yes, I forget. don't know if it's Rabona, Rabona. This pass where you, you decide to kick the ball uh, from, how would you describe it? With one foot goes to kick the ball from behind the other foot. So it's kind of kicking around the corner of your other foot. Yeah, it's a way to avoid using your weaker foot. Mm -hmm. you, you, you stand on your, on your planted foot and your standing foot and you kind of wrap your, your better foot around the back. Now, I've seen Dimitri Payet do this for West Ham, and he, he put in a beautiful cross, which West Ham scored a goal from. So it looks amazing when it happens. Uh, I think uh, Eric Lamella scored a European goal of the season, doing the same for Tottenham Hotspur two years ago. But if it fails, then it's considered showboating. It's considered something that's uh, not necessary in that situation. Usually your weaker foot will still deliver a more reliable ball than, than trying a Rabona. So it's one of those things. If you are good enough to be successful, like Ronaldinho with his no-look pass, we'll say, well done. But if you are uh, Emerson Royale and you, you muck up, or the pirouette you described, which was Anthony for Manchester so, United. So yeah, let's describe it. So Anthony was in acres of space, in lots and lots and lots of space. There was no, no defenders anywhere near him. He receives the ball in not a particularly dangerous position. He spins three times with the ball attached to his foot the whole time. It was quite impressive. I would definitely fall over if I tried something like that. But it was it produced nothing it didn't create any danger or anything like that but the problem was he then passed the ball to an on-running uh, player i think actually this was a bit a bit harsh because the pass was the right pass mm -hmm. uh, there was space to be found behind the defense but he completely overplayed the pass maybe he, he was dizzy maybe he was dizzy from all the turns yeah and i wonder if it was dizziness that feeling you get mm -hmm. when you turn around too many times um and again, he was heavily criticised uh, by by ex-Manchester United players who make a living from criticising Manchester United, Paul Scholes. Um, Tim, and... we, we have to cut it off this one. We'll have to come back to the show, both. Our time is about to expire. So okay. Let's say it's goodbye been to an listeners. absolute pleasure, Tom. Thank you, Tim. And uh, yes, if you like what we do, please feel free to share our content if you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast. And Thank join you very us much. on TikTok. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.